You're listening to a Toronto Centre podcast. Welcome. The goal of TC Podcasts is to spread the knowledge and accumulated experience of global leaders, experts, and world-renowned specialists in financial supervision and regulation. In each episode, we'll delve into some of today's most pressing issues as it relates to financial supervision and regulation. The financial crisis, climate change, financial inclusion, fintech, and much more. Enjoy this episode. Well, hello, everyone, and good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, depending on where you are. Uh, and welcome to another episode of Toronto Centre's virtual webinar series on supervision uh, after COVID-19. Uh, we have today 130 registered attendees for this webinar from 31 countries. Uh, my name is Clive Brailt, and I'm the chair of Toronto Centre's Banking Advisory Board. Uh, but more importantly, our distinguished panelists today are Elsie Adewawadzi, the Deputy Governor of Bank of Ghana, uh, Martin Maloney, the Director General of the Jersey Financial Services Commission, and Lyndon Nelson, uh, Deputy Chief Executive of the Prudential Regulation Authority in the UK. We've already circulated their biographies uh, with the programme material. So welcome to Elsie, Martin and Lyndon. Uh, it's very, very good to have you with us today. Uh, managing through the pandemic and adjusting to the new normal has not been easy for financial supervisors. Uh, and as its contribution to this effort, in late September, the Toronto Centre published the most comprehensive, practical and cross-sectoral guide to supervision in the COVID-19 world with input from a wide range of supervisory authorities and standard setters. Uh, I do encourage you to read it and we'll be putting up a link to that publication in the chat function in just a moment. But today we're gonna to focus on the implications of COVID-19 for supervisory judgments. We've seen already how supervisors have had to make some difficult judgments uh, in the COVID-19 world. For example, uh, in assessing how well banks are dealing with credit risk at a time when borrowers are being supported by government assistance and payment holidays, but some of those borrowers may not survive once that assistance is withdrawn. And we've seen some judgments becoming slightly more difficult to make. For example, in making assessments of senior management or boards of supervised firms on the basis of video conference interviews rather than face-to-face -face meetings. Uh, looking ahead, it's clear that supervisors will need to make judgments on how the crisis may evolve, uh, how well supervised firms will respond to the heightened risks that they face, to emerging new risks and whatever else the new normal may bring. So even if there is nothing fundamentally new in supervisors being judgmental and forward-looking within a risk-based approach to supervision, some of the parameters have shifted and the importance of being judgmental and forward-looking may have increased further. Uh, we do intend today to leave time for your questions, uh, so do please use the Q&A tab on your Zoom screen if you want to submit your questions. Uh, I would just like to thank the key sponsors of Toronto Centre, namely Global Affairs Canada, Swedish CEDAR, the IMF, Jersey Overseas Aid, USAID and Comic Relief. 
And I'd also like to thank Demet Kanachka and Diana Bird of Toronto Centre who have worked so hard behind the scenes to bring you this quality webinar. So let's start off with uh, the first question for our panelists today, uh, which is what difference has COVID-19 made to the types of judgments that supervisors in your organization are required to make? And can you illustrate this with some examples? Uh, so Elsie, would you like to start on that one, please? Thank you, Clive, and um, thank you to the Toronto Centre for this opportunity. Uh, in my view, the, the judgments that supervisors are having to make are not different from what they typically would have to do. What is different is just how challenging it is to arrive at a conclusion one way or the other, uh, given the uncertainties that we face, as well as sort of the fact that this is bank-wide, this is industry-wide. It's not, you're not dealing with just one institution that uh, at one time, you're dealing with a pandemic that is, um, that, that has shocked the entire industry. So you're having to make very difficult choices um, than you probably would ever have to be. A few of these are, for example, the fact that most regulators have given uh, capital and liquidity reliefs uh, to banks. The question is how much of this, how much of such forbearance to give um, and for how long? Uh, given the fact that the duration of the pandemic is extremely uncertain, um, given the fact that the impact on the real sector are evolving. So where, where, where are the trade-offs and where, where is that curve going to evolve, going to um, end up? And so these are some of the difficulties. There's, a net, there's also the key difficulty of the fact that most banks have moved mostly uh, electronic in their service uh, delivery and the operational risks that attend to these are quite high. Um, what are the types of assessments that supervisors need to make? These, these uh, moving online mostly has changed a lot of the business models that supervisors have been used to. And then overnight, they're having to struggle to understand what, what does this mean for the institution? What, what is judgment in this context, you know? Uh, the other key thing is the fact that um, the, the road, I call it the road to rebuilding capital and liquidity buffers will be very long. And um, how are supervisors supposed to deal with this on a daily basis? Very quickly, we're going to see uh, capital and liquidity buffers erode. Uh, already we've given a lot of reliefs uh, and the remaining buffers that are in place would very, very quickly be eroded in the coming year. Um, what stance must supervisors take? We're used to approaching this by the rules, by the rule book uh, and knowing when to intervene and when not to intervene. But in this context, judgment is going to be very difficult. And um, you don't want to intervene too quickly. You don't want to intervene too late. Uh, what does that mean? So a lot of unknowns, a lot of questions, and it just makes uh, decision-making very, very difficult in these, in these circumstances. Okay, well, thanks for that, Elsie. So some key issues there around forbearance initially, uh, about rebuilding capital and liquidity buffers as we move forward, uh, and about the changing landscape out there in terms of digital delivery. So some areas there, which, as you say, require supervisory judgment. Uh, so moving on, 
Martin, same same question for you. What uh, what judgments have you and your authority been uh, making during COVID nineteen, and how's that gone? Sorry, you're on mute, Martin. The classic COVID crisis uh, motto, you're on mute. Anyway, <laughs> uh, just to say, uh, I'm struck immediately by the similarity between what, uh, what I would say and what the Deputy Governor has said. Uh, uh, and it, it is definitely an experience that we've all, we've all shared. But I do also recall um, when I first became a regulator that we placed great value on the experiences of some elder regulators who in years gone by had been involved, let's say, in, in, in the winding up of banks or other crisis events. And I think back on that in the course of the recent, uh, the recent crisis, because it was striking the difference in perception and experience of supervisors who had been through 2008 or some other crisis versus people who had become supervisors since then because it definitely calls for a degree of um, creativity and lateral thinking and uh, originality on the part of supervisors that they're not normally used to. And in that sense, the crisis situation makes you put away the rule book and try to think from scratch about what your public function is. So um, uh, it's already been mentioned about some of the reliefs that have been, been given in relation to things like dividends and buffers and also on timelines. And a, and a lot of those were exercises of judgments by regulators where nobody could really tell you what the right answer was. And uh, in, in that sense, the exercise of judgment has been critical, but also um, it can suddenly require regulators to have knowledge of things that uh, parts of the market, for example, that they wouldn't normally have knowledge of. So those who paid particular attention to the uh, oil commodity futures market as it reacted in March, April, for example, and the whole question of physical delivery and why that was impacting on that market and tried to figure out whether we as regulators should be worried about that. It required you to dive down deep into an area that you might not have been very familiar with and really to, to pick up very quickly uh, uh, information. And, and in that respect, I think what supervisors would normally do, which is quite interesting, is we will often reach out to our network within the industry itself, not necessarily to the firms we regulate, but to people we've worked with in the past and ex-supervisors and so on, to try to pick up information on, on how things are, are um, uh, actually work in the market and how significant the events and the information we receive is. So in that sense, it is about the exercise of judgment where there is no rule book, but it's also, I think, about using your networks and your resources to try to get new types of information that you don't necessarily uh, normally have as a, as a supervisor. And the third thing I would emphasize is, and I'm sure we all did this, the support we had to give to governments with the various uh, uh, remote working, home working, whatever you want to call it, move out of the office processes that they engaged in, where at least initially there would have been deep concern as to how the financial sector would do that. As it turned out, the financial sector turned out to be pretty good at, at remote working, but you couldn't have known in March, April, how good their compliance controls were going to be uh, and, and what uh, other areas that you might be expected as a financial regulator to get involved in. Did you get involved in who was essential staff, for example, who was defined as essential staff? So you're forced into a, a range of judgments there around your relationship with government which are also quite new for, for regulators. And I thought those were quite interesting uh, uh, developments. 
Okay, thank you very much for that, Martin. And we'll come back a little bit later to the question about how to how to instill uh, creativity and lateral thinking in supervisors. But last but not least, Lyndon, same question for you. Uh, I'm sure an avid reader of speeches made by members of the Prudential Regulatory Authority in the UK will have seen the word judgment appear many times over the last decade. Uh, what's been different under COVID-19? Well, thanks, Clive. Uh, as you say, judgment at the heart of our processes, indeed, it is of many. Um, and I'll, because I'm going last, I'll try and feed off some of the comments from my colleagues, because I very much support uh, all the things that they said. I mean, the key, the, the two key judgments are the ones that you put in your introduction, Clive, which is the, the judgment, of, judgment about the path of the virus and the judgment about the impact of government support. And indeed, as Elsie sort of began saying, this is a sectoral, this has been a sectoral problem. I would say the UK's approach has been very much characterized in that sort of macro prudential space. So the way the judgments have changed in a way is that they've been more in combination. They've been more in the combination of somebody making a sector-wide judgment about the path of the virus and the impact of government with then the micro prudential judgment about how does that impact my particular institution. And as Elsie and Martin have both said, you know, we have been played our part as part of that sectoral story in relaxing and using as much of the flexibility in Basel as we can to relax the capital, the capital constraints. Um, so I think that's been really the sort of the key. And it's been very difficult, obviously, for supervisors, given the, the degree of uncertainty that they've had to form some of those judgments. But we've essentially been doing that by having this much more I would say collective collective process than the one that we've been encouraging uh you know in more business as usual a few things i might also point out i think we've had much more involvement with the monetary policy side of the bank of england than most of our micro prudential supervisors would have had before uh we we've obviously keyed a lot of our stress tests off uh the actually the uh, the macro macro inflation uh, forecast or indeed in some cases scenarios because they were unable actually to produce a forecast in the early few months of the crisis uh, and also uh, more recently as the UK have has speculated about using negative rates and the impact that that would have on business models and as Elsie said on actually on restoring some of these buffers and these capital positions. We were, for, we were fortunate in one respect we had two members of staff who, who we had seconded uh, a couple of years earlier to help on the Ebola uh, crisis and in fact therefore had actually some uh, some people who were very expert in in disease transmission and other things like that and that was we sent one to deal with the bank's own internal uh, preparedness but also one who was leading uh, for us in in terms of supervisory approaches uh, and the other thing I would I would highlight is uh, where we've seen some of the some of the risks uh, and therefore key judgments is that We've seen a lot of firms, and indeed ourselves, actually, take some some decisions based on the maybe the the wrongful belief that things would be back to normal in a few months' time, and not expecting when we first went into this, which was in March in my country, that it would be a you know nearly potentially a year before we were going going back, and I think you know decisions taken in terms of risk appetite for a short period of time look very different when they're extended for that for that amount of time. So we've definitely been uh, sort of sharing best practice uh, with supervisors about what some of those decisions are. And Martin alluded to one of them, which I think was the, is the conduct issue, which I think I think some firms were very prepared to take a, a short conduct risk 
uh, for a very short space of time when they didn't have physical controls in place. But I think increasingly when they've had a choice, they've chosen to bring those conduct risks back into the office uh, where the control environment is much more uh, controllable. So I think that's just an observation that we've, we've had and that's what we've been trying to uh, pass on to the supervisors. Hey, thanks a lot for that, Lyndon. There's some interesting comments there, particularly I think around the greater focus on the macro prudential uh, and wider macroeconomic position. Uh, well, let's let's move on then. Let's let's look ahead a bit. Um, you know, you've all said that making judgments and taking a forward-looking approach has probably become even more important as a result of COVID-19. Uh, but how do you think this is going to evolve over? the next two to three years. Uh, you know, particularly, uh, as Linda was saying, some people probably uh, overestimated the speed at which the, the world would return to normal. Uh, you know, although vaccines have begun to be rolled out, uh, in some cases it's quite possible that that process will carry on for at least the next 12 months, possibly longer. So again, we're not going to return to full normality everywhere uh, very quickly. So. Uh, how do we think the need for supervisory judgments may evolve over the next two to three years? So, Martin, can we start with you this time around? Okay, well, I, this is this is a, a tough question in a way, and, and, and to some extent it depends on um, making some assumptions about how COVID-19 itself uh, ends up. But if we if we start, I guess, with the with the optimistic assumption that we're we're at the back end of this this crisis, hopefully. Uh, and uh, uh, so it's about what we can see, or at least in answering your question, it's about what we can reasonably uh, prepare for. I think it's probably fair to say that um, uh, the designers of regulatory frameworks have been urging uh, supervisors to exercise judgment for, for the best part of uh, more than 20 years, actually. But supervisors are inherently, I think, reluctant to expand the sphere of their uh, exercise of supervisory judgment. They don't particularly like to second guess the market. They do it, but they do it maybe tentatively and carefully and with, with a lot of support. So I think, I think uh, you will see supervisors trying to uh, increase their use of judgment uh, uh, carefully. But I think there are a couple of reasons why we will be forced further down that road. I was particularly struck by a recent uh, article by Tobias Adrian uh, of the IMF, a very influential financial economist there, Low for Long was the name of the article. And uh, he was really emphasizing the importance for central banks of taking into account the impact of the interventions they're engaging in on financial markets and the increasing fragility of financial markets. And that fragility is very hard to, to measure, but it forces us, I think, as supervisors to be more actively engaged in, in answering the question, when is enough enough? When are precautions uh, sufficient? And that becomes a harder and harder question to, to answer in an era of uh, uh, deep uncertainty. And the second factor I think that uh, is widely recognized is that COVID-19 has pushed forward a lot of trends that were there, not only in the financial sector, but more broadly in the economy, in terms of the impact of technology on the economy and, and uh, in innovation. And this has speeded up a lot of processes that were happening anyway. And, and I think that that um, that is going to have an impact on us. We're going to face more and more uh, uh, innovation. And, and um, 
if the home working trend becomes a, a serious and long term, then obviously, uh, to go back to the question Lyndon mentioned, um, we will have to be willing to make judgment on, on the, the adequacy of um, uh, control systems that involve significant amount of, of home working. But there are, I think, are there are a number of other themes that have emerged from this crisis. Uh, one obvious one is the ratcheting up of cyber risk during this crisis. And I suspect uh, from a regulator's point of view, that is going to mean that we're going to have to move away from what for many regulators has been the approach of just checking on the governance of cyber risk controls within, within entities. I think we're increasingly going to move into the space of making substantive judgments on the adequacy of those controls and make them ourselves rather than, rather than leave those to the entirely to the, to the regulated entities. I think the area of organizational resilience is going to become a hugely important theme in this period of fragility. And there's something fundamentally challenging for regulators in judging organizational resilience, because you're judging the adequacy of organizational arrangements for an unknown threat. And that's a particularly difficult thing to do. If you can, if you can stress test something and, and figure out in relation to a known threat, why you are building resilience within a system, that's one thing. But if you were trying to make a judgment as to the adequacy of resilience frameworks to deal with an unknown threat, that's a very different approach. And it makes you focus on questions like single points of failure rather than adequacy in a, in a given scenario. And I think the third area that strikes me is um, uh, the, the global governance around financial stability. And it may be that uh, notwithstanding that we've done quite well and the, the framework of relationships has done quite well in this crisis, uh, it has set an agenda of issues for regulators to think about globally in relation to how well we govern and control financial stability across the globe. And our, our governance arrangements for that perhaps seem a little bit weak and uh, leave individual regulators with perhaps too much judgment to be exercised at a local level because the 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 global frameworks are, are could do with, with with a little bit more work i suspect okay thank you martin well pleasure to keep you occupied over the next uh, two to three years then <laughs> uh, thank you for that uh lyndon your views on how judgment might evolve over the next two to three years thank you uh, absolutely. And I, I might just at the end key off a couple of things that Martin said that definitely are topics that uh, I care about very much so. So I would say as uh, as many consultants are trying to spin it, you know, we've made advancements in 10 years in, in the space of 10 months. But I think there's an awful lot of truth in essentially that move towards digitization. Um, and of course, I think what that means is we're going to get a lot more business models uh, that are going to come along to exploit that. And of course, most uh, jurisdictions will welcome uh, you know the competitive and the dynamic nature of that but I think for supervisors judging business models and the viability of those going forward as Martin said with the degree of uncertainty uh, that we live in is is very much a challenge I mean we for banking clearly the the where we are in terms of credit risk as you highlighted Clive and and where we are in as Martin said in low for long big challenge but even in insurance for example what COVID has introduced is is perhaps a, a greater uh, emphasis on contract uncertainty. What, what sort of things are they actually writing? And indeed, in terms of the UK courts, what the scope 
uh, of actions might be, we may actually see something that's very common in a number of jurisdictions, the so-called class action suits have been definitely developing over COVID. So I think the risk environment uh, has definitely altered and for supervisors, you know, their judgment about areas of contract uncertainty and these judgments about availability would be really, I think, quite challenging. As Martin absolutely said, you know, this increase in digitization means that there's a piece of silicon uh, at the end of that channel. And that does make industry very vulnerable, uh, I think, to, to cyber attack. Uh, our approach, Martin, to the challenge that you had about the threat is that we are threat agnostic and essentially just assume that there will be failure and then work, as you say, uh, from that point. But I think the other thing it's done, it's I've noticed a very interesting change in how our supervisors, the challenge that some of our supervisors have had. If I might characterize it quite crudely, if you were a supervisor of one of the major UK uh, globally important banks, you were very much used to having the whole of that entity under your under your control. It was big and a challenge to do that. But I think when you look at technology and more and more third parties uh, being involved, then suddenly they start, they start to speak the language of what I might call a host supervisor of, well, there's something else beyond what I can see. And how do I think about that? And I think we've tried to sort of cross pollinate the experience of the host supervisors, because the UK is quite a big host supervisor, with those domestic supervisors who are very much having to learn a few new tricks about how do I piece together my, my view of you know, HSBC when I've got Amazon Web Services over here and Azure over there and things like that. So I think that's definitely a big, a big change for them in terms of how the judgments they make about the viability of the entity that they actually are responsible for when it's got these other component parts that they don't have as much uh, access and visibility of uh, uh, as they would normally. And I think what you might also see, and if I might talk about you know, domestic arrangements, I'm expecting quite a lot more segmentation of how we supervise, uh, quite a lot more focus on the ease of exit. And also, I think on our ways of working, we are, we've just established a project on ways of working. And really, there are two extremes here. There is the, well, once the virus has gone away, we'll all go back to the office as we always were. And then, as many of us listened to in the International Conference of Banking Supervisors, a paper from Harvard Business School saying, well, once you break the connection with the office, perhaps you can just work anywhere. Uh, and I think that, that how do we manage as a supervisory function where we have to work out what people prefer will be quite a challenge in, in, in the coming years. Okay, thank you very much, Lyndon. And uh, thank you also for taking us into the world of uh, insurance as well as banking and securities. Um, so last but not least on this round, uh, Elsie, how do you think uh, the use of judgment may evolve in the next two to three years? So thank you. Um, I, I believe fundamentally supervisors are going to have to adjust their risk appetite um, going forward because it seems to me that the perfect world where supervisors needed the comfort uh, of having buffers in the right places, of having governance and management and everything in the right places is, is probably gone for a while. Uh, how long, we don't know. It seems to me that over the next 12 years, we'll still be in containment mode, uh, trying to contain the impact of the pandemic. Uh, and so there will tend to be still the need to forbear for a while. Uh, and so we're all going to have to adjust our risk appetite, um, not only because banks will somehow still have to 
uh, grant loans, even in, in uncertain terms, were all bent on seeing economic recovery. And so even with concerns around credit risk, banks are still going to have to lend, you know. Uh, and then you're dealing with some banks, especially in emerging markets, developing markets, having to take up a lot of government debt to support all the additional fiscal spending to help contain the virus. Um, many of the foreign investors in emerging markets have had to move away. And so you're having banks and insurance companies and pension funds in the local uh, financial system picking up the slack. Uh, that is also in over increasing uh, the banks, over exposing banks, if you will, to, to, the, to the fiscal. Uh, and then at the same time, you have debt sustainability concerns, uh, even, even for the sovereign. And so it, it just seems to me that we have to sort of begin to talk about where are we going to be comfortable you know, uh, going forward. And then again, you have um, some concepts that have taken to take, have started to take root, particularly again, in emerging and developing markets, but not sort of caught on completely, but are becoming very important uh, as we talk about post COVID recovery. These are the concepts of financial inclusion. These are the concepts of sustainable finance and banks dealing with climate related risks. Now, these are going to be very important for supervisors to sort of focus on. So while wanting banks to start to build resilience going forward, we're also going to have to focus on uh, some kind of a, a trade-off that allows them to, like I said, grant more loans, provide more access to all financial, all economic actors, while thinking of how do we use, how do banks use your market power to begin to promote more sustainable ways of doing business. And all of that is very confusing for supervisors. Uh, many supervisors don't already have these skills uh, to help them make the appropriate judgments. And so we're going to have to spend a lot of effort also on building capacity and helping supervisors acquire skills in perhaps areas where they haven't previously uh, had a focus. Um, it's one of the issues that Lyndon talked about. Um, and then you have the fact that um, as we, we've all said, a lot of the banks have, have moved um, online with their services. Supervision itself is having to move online or has had to move online pretty much. We, we're not, we still probably won't have uh, enough on-site examinations in the next few months. And so uh, there's a sense in which we have to also begin to think of how are we going to be able to do that more effectively? Uh, supervisors are going to have to invest a little bit more in, in technology that allows them to do this more effectively. Uh, the whole AI subtech area is something that we need to look more closely at and see how we can get to more granular data from supervised firms that allow us to make some judgments um, much more than we would have had the luxury of, of making in the past. Um, and then one other point that I don't hear enough about, the um, cross-border cooperation uh, conversation has to be broadened. Um, I think it was Lyndon or, or Martin, I forget which one, that talked about big tech, Amazon, and, and all of that being very much part of the equation now. And before now, cross-border supervision has really been uh, among supervisory authorities. After the global financial crisis, we've made a big push to include um, other authorities, including uh, perhaps even fiscal authorities or deposit insurance schemes, others 
in the Financial Safety Net that all have a role to play in crisis management. But the big tech regulators are very far removed from the conversations um, and yet are having a big role to play in terms of access to supervisory data, um, even the resilience, operational resilience of banks. And, and if all of us are moving online, both the supervised firms and the supervisors, we perhaps be, need to begin to think of how risks are concentrating uh, on the big tech front and, and what conversations we need to start having with the regulators of these big techs, if, if any. And so these are some of the few things I can think about in addition to what um, Lyndon and Martin have already said. Okay, thanks very much for that, Elsie. Um, well, let's turn to answering a couple of the questions which have, which have come in from uh, the audience. Uh, the first one, uh, a question about whether you think that the extent of legal responsibility of the supervisor or regulator will constrain the types of decisions that can be made by the authorities, uh, or whether perhaps there will be a lot of litigation after the event. So, you know, taking lots of judgments is fine, but what happens when someone takes you to court afterwards? Um, so nothing, nothing personal in that context, but Martin, do you want to take that one first? Because it may be particularly pertinent for supervisors with responsibilities of the securities sector. Yes, and I, and I think, um, what would I say? There are, there are I think, three, three um, challenges of this type that I would point to. One is, I think there are questions relating to regulatory independence, and I won't talk about them. We could do a whole sit well, we could do a whole webinar on, on regulatory independence quite quite happily. And, and, and I think secondly, there are these issues that I already mentioned in relation to innovation and the regulatory frameworks being sort of out of date, but public expectation on the regulators still being that they will respond proportionately and promptly to the to the changes, even though in the world we now live in, actually regulatory frameworks can be up to 10 years behind, uh, you know, from the point you spot a problem to the point you've adjusted the regulatory framework through various international bodies and then down into local application to get it responded to. But the third area which is brought out in the, in the, in the question, I think is quite an interesting one about the potential for cases to be taken. And my observation here would be that in different parts of the world, there are, are different degrees of potential legal exposure for regulators. And there is a best practice here, it seems to me, that which uh, is that regulators cannot be sued in the absence of negligence or bad faith. And that is not the case in a lot of countries, or in some countries at least. And it is the only way, it seems to me, to create a legal framework that prepares for the unknown. And we're all talking about the known unknowns as being things we're supposed to prepare for. But in situations like we've just gone through, uh, where regulators have to make uh, decisions and make, pass judgments in entirely on, on, uh, on uh, anticipated circumstances, the only way you can really create an appropriate framework is through that test, which does exist in a number of countries. Uh, which provides, uh, particularly I think in, in some common law jurisdictions, which provides to me the, the, the best practice standard. And in the absence of that, I'm afraid regulators in some other jurisdictions will find themselves constrained and will not do what in their best judgment, having consulted widely and so on, they think is in the public interest and uh, which is urgently needed to be taken. It's not unlike the problem that is sometimes uh, discussed about uh, weaknesses 
in the laws governing uh, central bank interventions in response to crises where sometimes political uh, realm will try and constrain them excessively and then regret it afterwards when the crisis hits and they need them to have the flexibility. Okay, thanks a lot for that, uh, Martin. Uh, Lyndon, I think you typed an answer to a question on credit risk, but uh, I think technologically, once you send the answer to the person who asked it, only that person and you had seen the question and the answer. So I don't know if you could just very briefly summarize the question and what your uh, answer I'm was. Sorry. For the Absolutely. I'm so that. sorry, Clive, I was uh, <laughs> trying to be helpful. But yeah, so this was a question of um, uh, which we, I think we've covered in, to some extent, which is the fiscal stimulus uh, and the low net interest margin and the poor asset quality. And what does this sort of mean for supervisors and indeed resolution? I think it, it's a, absolutely a, a great question. It's not looking particularly healthy for banks at the moment, I would I would suggest. Uh, the way we've done it in the UK, as I said, we've done we've done stress testing. So you, you can pour all of your uh, you know, cynicism into the scenario for that and then obviously work out where the outliers are and discuss that with management about how uh, that those things could be remedied and indeed if they can't be remedied then potentially you're looking at a, a resolutionary a resolution route um but i think it is um this comes back to the you know the heart of the debate we're having today about you know there's some pretty key key judgments in that and then therefore they will come down to an appetite for both resolution and for forbearance uh, which of course will reflect some of the uncertainty inherent in some of the judgments we make. I know of some resolution authorities, I won't speak of my own, who will be particularly cautious, I think, uh, to resolve an institution that might on the face of it at the moment look uh, very look solvent, but maybe in future uh, might not given uh, all of the very different difficult judgments we might make there. But my only advice really in these circumstances is to is to get it get it out in some way in discussion in terms of what you fear is the scenario stress test is how we would do it and then you can debate it from from that point on okay great thanks very much um another question that's come in is what advice would you give to regulators and supervisors who are not yet looking into uh, the sort of cyber risks technology risks and managing fintech risks that uh, many of you were talking about in your introductory remarks and perhaps perhaps on that we could start with you Lyndon and then move on to Elsie yeah. given the rather different ways in which uh, these these risks and fintech uh, evolution occurs in different countries. Thank you Clive that's great uh, it's a particular passion of mine so I'll try and limit my comments so I do uh, chair the G7 group and you might say maybe part of the haves in this discussion about having quite a lot of access to quite a lot of cyber experts and I know that can put a number of jurisdictions off. Um, my advice always actually is uh, to, to give you some some facts from what we discover when we do our own penetration testing of our own UK important institutions. 90% of the failures that we find are what you would call basic housekeeping, basic hygiene, passwords, patching for which you need no particular technical experience uh, whatsoever and so i think you know in the adage that two you know the, the old joke about two golfers walking along a woods and one of them says you know there are bears here what would you do if a bear came after after us do you think we could outrun it and the other one turns to him and says well all i have to do is outrun you uh so so the reality is don't make the firms be the easiest target for a hacker so i would say 
if jurisdictions can focus on the 90% hygiene factors, I think you're quite a long way there. After that, yes, absolutely, there is quite a curve to go up, I would say, in terms of uh, learning about that. But then again, I think work with your government authorities who will also be looking very much at these issues. We have a very close partnership with our own government authority. We could not do the work we do in terms of where the threats are and the vulnerabilities are without them. We actually have very, very, very few uh, what I call pure cyber experts uh, in the bank. So we do most of ours by partnership with, uh, with those authorities. Okay, thank you, Lyndon. Um, Elsie, just to put the same question to you in terms of how you're responding to FinTech and evolving cyber risk and other related risks. Yeah, um, so we, we luckily, two years ago, we put in place uh, the regulatory framework for that, where we require very specific technical standards to be met by all the players in the ecosystem, as well as the governance requirements. Um, I must say that it takes a long time for compliance to get where one would want it to be. And even for the industry, as well as the regulator, to build the capacity to be able to uh, do this right. On the, on the onset, from the onset of the pandemic, we've seen you know, a huge rise in the use of uh, digital financial services. And we're dealing not only with the fintechs, we're dealing with telcos because a lot of, our, of those transactions are happening on the back of mobile, mobile money wallets uh, and then a host of third party players in the ecosystem. So um, as Lyndon said, a lot of these are very simple frauds, right? And so we use a lot of education as well, both for the industry as well as for, for the public, basic uh, education. And, and then we have, we put in place technical capacity to monitor the industry um, and then be able to pick up threats and get the industry to do the right things. We've had a few cases of frauds um, haven't been successful. And then we use those as case studies to educate the industry on a forward looking basis. And again, we also have a very close cooperation with, uh, with the national authorities, as well as other, other industry regulators in the financial system. So it's multifaceted, but for, I think the question had to do with what advice we have for regulators who are not doing this yet, my answer will be to start right away. Okay. That's a very good answer, Elsie. Very good advice. Um, okay, a different question for you, Martin. Um, how should regulators and supervisors ensure that investors uh, primarily, and also perhaps depositors and policyholders are still protected in the midst of this health and economic crisis? Um, you know, considering that the information needs of investors has probably increased many times over at a time when uh, the companies issuing uh, debt and other securities uh, probably face greater uncertainty than ever before. So, you know, what about this whole business of disclosure and transparency for the benefit of investors and other consumers? Unfortunately, I, I would um, have a, a slightly pessimistic answer to this, which is that if you haven't done the work in advance, you are unlikely to be able to resolve this question in the midst of, 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 of a crisis. So your main asset management firms and your banks and the various other uh, intermediaries and so on who are uh, the counterparts, the investors and the depositors will need to have well-established systems and approaches 
well in advance of this of this crisis to be able to to deal with it and if they have those systems and they are reasonably well advanced what they will show up is the gaps so what will happen very quickly as a crisis like this develops is that you believe you have a good adequate set of information that you are giving out to people but as a firm you will start to get complaints in and queries in notwithstanding the information flow out that you believe you have already designed and structured and as a supervisor the right thing to do is to is to go to your your largest intermediaries and and actually start asking them about what the feedback is that they are getting because certainly in talking to a lot of asset managers during this crisis um, it became quite obvious to me, for example, that a number of investors in various investment funds didn't particularly actually understand the strategy that they were invested in. And a lot of queries were being generated for the companies by the surprise of the investors that the, that the value of their investments was going in a certain direction in the light of market events of which those investors were clearly aware and understood. So they weren't able to add up two and two together and get four. Now, one might say that's the investor's fault for not understanding, but there is definitely a, 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 also a responsibility on, the, on the, uh, the provider of that investment instrument to make sure that they've done everything they can to help and facilitate the investors in understanding what's going on. So this is one we talked initially about, about the, the way supervisors actually change their behavior when the crisis hits. This is one of the areas where you change your behavior when the crisis hits and you start asking the, the asset manager or the bank questions you wouldn't normally ask them. And a lot of what uh, in, uh, supervisors are really good at comes into play here, which is nudging, pushing, encouraging, reflecting back to those organizations about where those weaknesses are, being the challenger within the system for those organizations to get them to move in the right direction. If you have to go further, in a crisis uh, situation, you will very quickly run up against the limitations on the systems within the various uh, financial services firms, and you will not be able to achieve change, I would say, very, very quickly, while the crisis will unfold quickly. So you will have a problem. It's all in the preparation, I'm afraid. Okay, thanks for that, Martin. So Elsie's answer start immediately. Martin's answer should have started yesterday. Uh, that's a very different <laughs> question. It's, it's, a, it's a tricky one. Um, let me just move on to a question I wanted to come back to uh, in response to some of the things you were saying um, in the earlier rounds of answers. Uh, you know, we've, we've talked a lot about uh, digital delivery, cybersecurity, uh, the more general impact of technology and innovation. Uh, you've talked about the need for judgment around stress testing, uh, financial inclusion, climate risk cross-border cooperation. Um, so given, given that need, what have you found to be the most useful ways to encourage and help supervisors in your authority to be more judgmental and forward-looking? Uh, and in particular, you know, where do the various components of that come in for you and your uh, authority? You know, the skill sets of your staff, uh, whether or not management are supportive of staff taking judgments, uh, whether or not the broader culture needs to change to accommodate this, uh, and also perhaps whether some of those supervisory frameworks, uh, like the ways in which you do risk-based supervision, which have been in place for many years, uh, do they need to evolve as well in order to encourage your staff to take more and better judgments? 
So sorry, a slightly long question, but whichever angle of that you feel most comfortable in, in tackling. So Lyndon, uh, would you like to go first on this one? Yeah, thanks, Clive. I'll, I'll probably tackle the sort of cultural bit, if I may. I mean, I think in a way you have to create a sort of safe space for, for judgments to develop and, and thrive. It's, it's pretty bad if somebody sort of forms a judgment and for me to get slapped back down. So hopefully, you know, we do a lot of management training to try and work out how to do that. And I'll come back to that in a second. The other way we've done safe uh, to create safe harbors is we've done an awful lot of training um, so I, for example, chair the main executive decision-making meeting in the regulator, and I actually regularly carry that duty in a, in a shadow capacity. So effectively, we take the same papers uh, where the senior people have exercised judgment, and um, it's part of a training course, and more junior staff come along, and I chair the meeting as I always would have done, and you know that gives them an ability to sort of exercise some of those judgments. And of course, for some senior decision-making uh, areas, these judgments are very, very finely balanced as indeed some of the questions we've had from the audience today sort of highlight, you know, how do you weigh up these various things? So we definitely do that. Uh, as Elsie's already pointed out, uh, never let a, a bad thing go to waste. And we use quite a lot of uh, case studies uh, as well. We have a intranet site that um, where people post those case studies and what they what they've learned uh, uh, from there. And then we've done uh, some training for management about how you you sort of manage in a in a sort of judgment-based sort of world and indeed in a more remote-based uh, world. I think we've actually found one of the advantages of remote working to actually be slightly more participative. Uh, you know, virtual rooms are infinite as, uh, as this uh, webinar is demonstrating, whereas, you know, there are very few meeting rooms in the bank which could take, what are we at now, at 73 plus a few more. So actually that's proved to be, uh, you know, that de democratization of the meetings and seeing judgments in place and how people use the work that they've prepared, I think has definitely benefited that process. Uh, thank you, Lyndon. And, and thank you for that practical example, because I think that's a very good illustration of something which any supervisory authority could put into practice. You know, this, this idea of sharing a real case uh, with a wide range of staff and asking how would you have dealt with it. A very good way of both encouraging people to take judgments but also taking a view as to whether different people in the organisation approaching that afresh would actually take different judgments and how you could finesse that. Um, Elsie, over to you. What are you doing to help your staff uh, become even more judgment based? Thank you. I think the first thing is to build the, you know, the capacity to be able to do that. And some of that Lyndon has talked about. Uh, but I think it was Martin who talked about the lateral thinking, the need for lateral thinking. So there's a sense in which we need to build uh, the skills in a range, uh, a broader range of, uh, of fields than they normally would have had to, they, they, they've been used to. So a lot of skills development and the managerial aspects of, of decision making. Uh, but I think in addition to that, the management support is critical because supervisors want to know that uh, they can make decisions, they can exercise judgment. And even if they go wrong, uh, if they have, they have followed a certain protocol and uh, they've exercised best, uh, you know, best efforts to arrive at those judgments, the institution will still have your back. And so I think the role of tools like indemnities uh, are very important. When, when, when is an, uh, when is a supervisor indemnified, right, by the institution, um, if they did something that ended up 
uh, to be wrong, you know. Um, when, how do you prove gross negligence? How do you prove that they did the best thing? So a lot along the same lines, you need to also increase your ethical sort of standards, the decision-making, ethics in decision-making um, and all of that. And in particular, the institutional culture, I think it was Lyndon who referred to that, the institutional culture is important. How does top management view decision making, um, even if sort of the right trade-offs are not made. And um, how, how is the response, um, you know, uh, sort of conveyed and, uh, and all of that. I think it's a slow process of building confidence really in supervisors and uh, a variety of approaches are required. Okay, thank you very much, Elsie. And uh, Martin, over to you on this one. And I think, I think you mentioned uh, earlier in the webinar, uh, the way in which you're also thinking about your supervisory framework. So perhaps you could pick up on that angle of this question, as well as any other angle you want to cover. Thank yeah, you. I was very, I, I very much agree with what, what both my colleagues have said, actually, and particularly the emphasis on culture. It's just so important uh, if you wanted to get judgment to happen. But this is all about, I think, about human nature and organizational behavior and trying to get that framework right. But I, I sometimes I like to think of this in in, in under sort of three pillars really. Uh, one is one is the culture question, which has been well covered in the previous answer. I think the second, which which is not as important but is important, is the actual regulatory framework itself, because you need to make sure, frankly, that uh, combative entities that don't want you to exercise judgment are not in a position to use the way your regulatory framework is written against you to suggest that you don't have the right to make judgment, but you must just follow your own rules. And that's important to be able to push back against that kind of behavior, which you don't get from most licensed entities, but you do occasionally get, and you've got to be aware of that. Uh, but the third area that I would, that I would focus on is, uh, is in systems to support judgment. And, uh, and, and that's, that to me is critical. So an awful lot of supervisors have been wrestling for many years now and are still wrestling with the development of really effective risk systems to do good analysis of the data that gets reported into us. So that informs the supervisory judgments and a judgment that is underpinned by, by uh, data and analysis to support it, which has the authorization and the approval of the organization it actually places the supervisor in a much better position to make a judgment. And uh, one of the areas I think a lot of us are increasingly moving into as a supplement to risk systems is the use of data analytics. So it's not a standard risk system analysis of the, of the reported regulatory data, but a capacity of supervisors themselves to generate a particular an, a analytics query to get an answer to a certain uh, issue that they pose, which very often will allow them to benchmark uh, um, uh, organizations against each other to identify outliers and in that way to rationalize or make transparent to, the, to their own organization the reasonableness of the judgments that they're exercising. And that's crucially important for, judgment, for supervisors that their colleagues see that they are exercising their judgment in a reasonable and thought out way. And if you can do that with all the other things that have been said here, to which by the way, I, I would however add 
uh, a HR policy emphasizing inclusion is also important because you need different types of people within your organization who approach things in different way. And you need the natural dissident as well as the natural compromiser. Uh, and you need the person who is a technical expert as well as the person who's a good people leader. And you need HR policies that promote that if you're going to get challenge, but not just pointless challenge, challenge that turns into debate and challenge that turns into the discovery of solutions uh, is, is, is critically important for challenge not to become just a, an exercise in destabilization, but an exercise in the creation of good outcomes. Okay, thank you very much for that, uh, Martin, and indeed Elsie and Lyndon. Again, some excellent practical advice to people. And I think this echoes uh, what I take to be a comment rather than a question um, from one of the audience saying, the culture of judgment and decision-making needs to be developed for the supervisor to be less reactive and more proactive. Um, and I'm sure all the panelists would agree with that. Um, let me come back now to a different question that's come in, and it comes back to some of the things we were talking about earlier about forbearance during COVID-19 uh, at a time of government support, payment holidays and the like. Uh, a question here about, can you advise on some safeguards to avoid unintended consequences of regulatory forbearance? Uh, is there a risk that there's a moral hazard problem here with the government and everyone else seems to be supporting each other, but actually at the end of the day, when all of that support is withdrawn, things may not look quite so good. Uh, Linda, do you want to go first on this one? Yes, thanks, Clive. I think Sophia's got Sophia's got a great uh, that's a great question. Um, I mean, in effect, and these are my words. I mean, I would say much of that sort of forbearance we were describing earlier on as part of a sort of sectoral story ultimately has to be tested against what you might call as a micro prudential veto. At some point, we have to say the firms can't take can't take this, and so I think that's exactly where Sophia's question is is right on the mark. The way we've done it is that we've essentially, when we made some of these forbearance decisions, we set up uh, essentially a reporting template uh, of key measures that we would look at, which essentially captured the thought process that we went through to make the forbearance judgments that we did. You know, we take notice of lending and all of those other things that we did. We then have measures against those and staff on a monthly basis uh, and this is independent to the decision-making process, essentially produce their judgment as to where we are on that scorecard using a red, amber, green. And every month uh, we, we take that, we look at that piece of paper and of course, if there are reds, we, we discuss them. And that really, I think, is a way of keeping us honest to the original decision-making that we took and the original justification for the forbearance that we took. Now, clearly, in some cases, we've had to move that on and we've had a change process about changing that. But I think we've been very careful not to change the original risk appetite. We've kept that going. So we've got some consistency of measure. I think it's probably the best way. I mean, I've seen, I think, we you know, supervisors are often when things go wrong, I think they're often accused of sort of letting things drift and carry on for a bit too long and all of those things. This seems to be the best way we've come out to try and safeguard that. Clearly, it hasn't been tested in full, in the full, you know, we haven't reversed our forbearance, put it that way. But I thought that was probably the, the best uh, innovation I'd seen to sort of combat Sophia's risk, which I think is a very real one. Okay, thank you, Lyndon. And Elsie, you were mentioning in your opening remarks uh, the judgments you've had to make around forbearance and the questions about rebuilding capital and liquidity buffers in due course. Um, 
Any comments you want to make about the potential unintended consequences of all that? Sorry, you're on mute. Sorry. Uh, so yes, I mean, that, that keeps us up at night um, where we, we don't know what we don't know. Uh, what, what we've done is to keep a very close eye, like Lyndon said. So we actually have a weekly reporting by the banks on what they're doing with the buffers we release to them. And we wanted to see where, how they were deploying those, how much of that is going to support uh, moratoria and other reliefs to their customers, how much of that is going into new lending, uh, what are the credit underwriting processes going on there, how much of that is going into government paper for which they're making a quick back, <laughs> you know, and all of that. So we really are monitoring. Um, as, as many other regulators have done, we've also put in place restrictions from payment of dividends and payment of executive bonuses uh, and all of that stuff, which we thought would also be very important so that, you know, the, 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 any remaining buffers are not being dissipated. But I think the real question is uh, being able to keep an eye bank to bank and seeing how this is impacting them. Uh, at some point, we're going to have to pull the plug uh, on these reliefs. And the question is when? And, 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 if, and also, if we're going to have an extended period of this pandemic, are we going to have to do even more? Uh, that's, that's a tricky question we don't have an answer for now, but we, we just continue to monitor the situation and, and have conversations with individual banks as needed. Okay, thank you very much. Martin, anything you just wanted to add quickly on that? I, just, I, I couldn't echo more Elsie's point about uh, that, that challenge if this crisis were to go on, which is a huge challenge for all supervisors, but maybe just one unintended consequence to observe, uh, which is, um, you know, regulatory frameworks were never designed to be engineering tools for guiding economic activity. So you can release a buffer or you can have a constraint in place, but that doesn't mean that you know how they're actually going to behave. You can release a buffer and they don't use it. And we have seen a lot of that, just as we have also seen, for example, in money market funds, um, them keeping uh, 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 weekly liquid assets uh, buffers in place and actually selling off less liquid assets because they don't want to mess with their regulatory, regulatory constraints. So it is actually a really complicated area to try to use regulatory frameworks to guide economic activity, and they were never designed for it. Okay, well, thank you, thank you very much for that. Uh, we started on time. I think it's important we finish on time. This is all part of good Zoom etiquette. Um, so just to say thank you very much to Toronto Centre and its funders for making this webinar possible. Uh, thank you very much indeed to the three panellists, Elsie, Lyndon and Martin, for their, their range of, I think, very informative views on the use of supervisory judgment in these difficult times. Um, and last but not least, thank you, the audience, for joining this webinar uh, and for the excellent questions which you've been submitting during it. I'm sorry we haven't had time to answer every single question. I, I can see there's a couple of questions come in on uh, resolution and dealing with uh, failed institutions. Uh, the only solace I can offer you on that is that uh, Toronto Centre did publish uh, a number of Toronto Centre notes, which you can find on the Toronto Centre website this summer on resolution planning and exit policy. Uh, so I suggest you look those up and read them and I hope they'll go some way to answering your questions. Uh, so on that basis, uh, thank you very much again for other panelists. And I see someone's kindly sent here something on the chat function saying, 
thank you for all the great insights. I couldn't have put it better. Uh, so on that basis, thank you very much. Seasonal greetings and stay safe. Thank you, Clive. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you.